To celebrate Black History Month, the Era Society podcast will this month look at the hidden stories and past contributions of people of colour to the RAF and look at how diversity can be improved within it. My name is Wayne J Davis and I'm the production manager at the Royal Aeronautical Society and I'm normally found at the Society HQ producing its aeronautical, aeronautical journal and the members magazine Aerospace. During this podcast, I hope to look at some of the hidden stories of achievement and service by black and brown Britons and those from the former colonies and consider whether it can inspire people from those communities today. I will do that with my guest, Andrew Rajan, actor, filmmaker, writer, social commentator, and author of the excellent novel, Cathedrals in the Sky, a fascinating time-hopping story featuring the fate of a World War II pilot from Trinidad, race relations in 1970s Britain, and the key role of the beloved Spitfire during the Second World War. Good afternoon, Andrew. Hello, good afternoon, Wayne. Thank you so much for having me on board. Now, you have quite an interesting backstory. Uh, can you tell us a bit about yourself? For sure, yeah. I mean, um, I was born in the 60s um, um, as uh, the son of a Trinidadian woman who was over here as part of Windrush to work at the NHS. Um, I was adopted into a white middle class family and grew up in Bedford. Um, and my first job was a Ministry of Defence apprenticeship um, in mechanical and production engineering um, based at DGDQA Aquila, which I think is no longer in existence, and the Woolwich Arsenal. Um, and I then went travelling. I went travelling for over a year, lived in Australia, um, and then came back and auditioned for drama school, as you do as a qualified engineer. And uh, got into Guildhall, um, became an actor, and then really was confronted by how stereotyped and uh, narrow the view was of people of colour in this Britain and how they would be represented. And that became a frustration and then something I wanted to address. Um, and so I kind of moved over to writing and, and filmmaking, um, made my first feature film in 99 as writer, director, producer, actor, and then went to film school to the National Film and Television School and did my master's in screenwriting. And ever since I've been writing, I think I've written three, four novels, um, a children's story, eight screenplays, three stage plays. Um, and so, yeah, uh, cathedrals, uh, the, the, the short route is that cathedrals came out of that. Um, my interest in engineering, uh, my love of Lancaster bombers, which used the same Merlin engines as the Spitfire. Um, that's really where, where, where all of that started. Right. And um, and so all that was obviously inspiration um, for for the book. Uh, clearly, yeah, it was it was inspiration. It, well, it, I don't know if it was inspiration so much as groundwork. I think the inspiration came of the the extraordinary technological um, um, progress that we made that was made through the war with the Merlin engine, um, and and the fact that I felt as a filmmaker as a writer that that there needed to be more of a balance with the stories that we are telling and were telling of um, the, the Second World War. 
Um, so there was so much input from people of color, um, from I think Africa, 1.3 million um, were part of the Allied war effort. India was something like 1 million in the Second World War and 1 million in the first. Um, the Commonwealth, uh, the numbers are, are fuzzy, um, unsurprisingly, but somewhere between 10 and 40,000 people volunteered for, for Great Britain's war effort. Um, and, and these stories, I think it's so important that these stories aren't lost. So I think that really was the inspiration. Originally, I wanted to make it as a BBC six-parter. I first came up with the idea in the 90s um, and drew a blank. It was going to be incredibly difficult to get a story of a, an Indian boy and a Spitfire off the ground. Um, but I was um, naive and optimistic, so I pushed it and got nowhere. And then eventually, because the idea didn't go away, I thought, well, I'm going to write the novel. And um, and then at least I get the story out of my system. That That was really... <laughs> the push to write the novel was just to move on from it. And, and that was a way of exorcising it, if you like. Right. And what did you learn about the contributions that uh, people from the Commonwealth made to the British war effort? Um, I learned an extraordinary amount. I, I was overwhelmed with, with information and knowledge. Um, and uh, I think... The numbers, as I say, are fuzzy and, and that's a shame. But as far as I can work out, there was something like 6,000 uh, ground crew came from um, the Caribbean and 500 air crew. Now, most of those air crew went into bombers, unsurprisingly, but, but some of them also went into hurricanes and others also made it into Spitfires, which is extraordinary and not the picture we know of when we think of the Battle of Britain. Um, I don't know who's listening to this podcast and many will know more than I do, but um, the Battle of Britain was only a three month um, um, window in 1940, the summer of 1940. Um, but it was it was so key. It was so crucial in in terms of the war. If if Hitler had managed to take over the skies, then it kind of would have been a much shorter war um, and with a very different outcome. So those ground crew, those those 6,000 ground crew and 500 air crew were crucial to the difference in the outcome of the war. Um, in the Battle of Britain film, which is a great movie with all, obviously stuff full of stars, uh, Laurence Olivier heading, um, it's a shame that at the end of that film, um, it lists all the Canadians, the New Zealanders, the Polish, even the single Israeli pilot, but it lumps all of the Commonwealth. Um, pilots in with the UK. So we know that that number was 1,822 pilots, but we don't know how many of those because they didn't think to separate them out. And that's a shame. And I suppose Cathedrals is a part, an effort um, to, to change that. Mm. And were you surprised at what you, you found out in your, your, your research for, for the book? <laughs> I was a bit terrified, if I'm honest, because I knew that there was going to be so many stories, so much information. Um, what's surprising is, is the detail, because it, it, it brings these guys to life. I mean, there was one guy, Ulrich Cross, who was a Trinidadian um, a fighter pilot, who is the most decorated of all um, um, 
Caribbean pilots. He got the DSO and the DFC. He was known as the Black Hornet and 139 Squadron. Um, and um, there was also Mahinder Singh Puji, who I believe now has a statue of himself up in Gravesend. Um, he got a DFC and was shot down twice, but he still had it in him to get back into that seat. You know, to think that you know you're going to die, you're shot down in, in, a, in a plane and, and you survive it. You climb out and you get back in another one and then do the same again and you're shot down twice. I mean, I think that those stories are extraordinary and deserved to be known, deserve to be told. These are these are true heroes. And that's so important, I think, for the younger generation coming up is to understand that. That our ancestry is a part of that winning the war and that you can be rightfully proud of our place in that as, as an inheritance. Yeah, certainly. Um, Personally, as someone of Jamaican heritage, I was particularly interested and proud to find out about William Robinson Clark, who was the first person of colour to fly for the British Air Services. The First World War. He actually, as a 19 year old, paid his own way to get to Europe uh, in order to uh, in order to join the Royal Flying Corps in 1915. Um, and um, so that was particularly surprising and inspiring to, to find that out. Um, and I, uh, why do you think um, it's important that we do re recognize these uh, contributions? Well, I think really, I mean, it's in your voice when, when you talk about him. He, I mean, what he must have overcome, he didn't just overcome how do you fly a plane, how do you excel at flying a plane? He overcame 4,000 miles of sea and an inordinate amount of racism um, to get to the point where they had to say, no, you're great. Um, we'll trust you with one of our aircraft. I mean, that that's extraordinary. Trinidad, Trinidad during the war funded an entire squadron. I think 74 squadron is known as the Trini squadron um, at the time. Spitfires were, I think, £5,000 in old money, which translates to something like nearly £200,000 now. And Trinidad wasn't an, um, a rich country. They didn't find oil until the 70s. So they funded an entire squadron of, of um, the RAF for the Second World War. And it's, it's really important. I mean, one of the reasons I become a filmmaker is because I think it's so important that younger generations can see heroes that, that they relate to in terms of their background, their colour, um, who did extraordinary things um, as a part of the fabric of British history. I mean, I, it, when I was a kid watching TV, it was electric to see someone I related to of colour on the screen. You stopped everything and you sat and you watched it and you wanted to know the what's and the why's. Um, and, and that must be the same for every kid. It doesn't matter where you're from. So it becomes incredibly important if, if children are going to believe in themselves and fulfill their own possibilities, their own dream, they feel that they can belong. There were people who did it before them um, and that it's a, a possible, that it's a possible thing to do. It's a possibility. I think that's that's inordinately important. Yeah, certainly. I mean, um, as I said, for me to find that the um, the first person to to, to fly um, in the armed forces um, 
uh, for Britain as a black person was Jamaican is, is something that I can I can link with and um, uh, much also like um, uh, Trevor Edwards who was a um, uh, a working class black Londoner, South Londoner, um, who grew up in um, Thamesmead in the um, 60s and 70s and went on to um, to to train. Um, it's actually quite a, an incredible aspect to his story, whereby in um, uh, early uh, early training, um, he actually um, in an unfortunate accident, he actually lost his toes. Um, despite that, he went on to train to become a pilot um, and um, went on to fly Jaguars throughout the 90s. Um, and so I, I totally agree with, uh, with what you say that um, young people do need uh, people that they can recognise themselves in and um, people that they can relate to, which would, of course, inspire them to um, uh, to make their way um, in the in the industry of aerospace or the armed forces. Um, do you think these stories and these contributions that people of colour have made to British uh, aerospace and aviation, do you think they've been publicised enough? Do you think the public are aware uh, of, of these? I, th I think sadly not. Um, I think that the, uh, to give them their due, like the RAF Museum certainly is, is Lately, making a, a good push to um, make displays about the Caribbean contribution to the war, for instance, um, online and at Cosford um, and at museums around the country. I know that they are making an effort, but unless one goes out and finds these stories oneself, then you're going to remain ignorant. If you go off what you learn mostly, I guess, from from the TV, from the media you're going to remain ignorant. I mean, I left school. I didn't know how to change a tire, how to rewire a plug or, or work a checkbook. And, uh, yeah. you know, education is so key. And I think my education really started once I left school, which <laughs> is sad and ironic. Um, so I think that these stories, they will die very, very fast. You know, the 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 guys who were there, men and women who fought in the war, that generation is dying now and, and it's so important that we capture those stories and we preserve them for the future if we're going to learn from history that's what this is all about um we need to understand that there is only one race on this planet um and we need to pull together and 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 fight as one um there's enough problems without us fighting amongst ourselves so um no i don't think that these stories are publicized enough um but that's what we, you and I, that's why we're here doing this in an effort. Um, I guess to address that balance in some small way. Um, and I will continue to try to redress that balance um, in every way that I possibly can. I'm pushing on all fronts as a, as a writer and director and uh, author. That's what, that's what this is all about is I, I think it's very difficult with the BBCs, the Channel 4s, the BFIs, you knock on the those doors and you just get a solid no and, and that is the road to madness if you continue to think that that is the answer it's obviously not the answer um yeah. what i would like to see is 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 a production house that really focuses entirely on stories from our ancestry from the commonwealth from africa from india because yeah. those stories need to be told deserve to be told and i think 
not just people of color, but everybody would be interested in them because they're amazing stories. So that really, I guess, is what, what I'm all about, is what I'm on. Yeah, yeah, I see what you mean. Um, in light of that, I mean, I think maybe we both agree that um, uh, these stories have not um, um, been brought forward to the public enough and aren't, aren't um, being made aware of. Um, do you think these stories have been genuinely uh, uh, lost as, as, as stories that um, people just haven't noticed or been aware of or, or have they been hidden, do you think? I think it's a combination of the two. You know, without doubt, there must be millions of stories, individual stories of courage um, that have been lost um, from the war, from all sides. Um, but they have also been, um, and we see that time and time again. Uh, I, I regard, I just don't like what I see of, of the Battle of Britain, British Bulldog, White Cliffs of Dover, how that has been, I, I call, whitewashed um, so successfully um, that it's become a kind of, um, this is the hill that I'm going to fight on for the far right, um, because it just wasn't the case without the polls, without the Commonwealth, without the Caribbean input, without the Indian input, that story would have turned out differently. And, and so it behoves us to educate everybody that is the case because it's not just ignorance, it's also fear and it's also guilt that pushes people in that direction, I feel. But if those stories were told and if we learned those stories in a more balanced education, in a more balanced history at school, there wouldn't be such um, an energy and a belief that the immigrants weren't invited here, they're unwelcome here, and that they're taking jobs. Britain wouldn't exist as it is. Britain would not have won the war without the input from all of these other countries. You know, India won 30 Victoria Crosses despite racism of 182 Victoria Crosses awarded in the Second World War. India took 30, and that's because they were put into the hotspots. Um, that the British Army were unwilling to go into just to soak up the the, the bodies. Um, that's extraordinary, and the, those stories deserve to be remembered. Um, so when I also consider that just last year there was a campaign because so many people of colour, so many Africans in particular, were thrown into mass unmarked graves. Um, yeah. Yeah. Those, you know, we know of almost we can account for almost every white person who died in the second world war we cannot say the same for the people of color and and that's remiss um that is racism the war um but it's not too late and we can turn that around and i think we would all benefit in the doing yeah yeah, it would seem a real problem that um, elements of um, uh, our military past has been mm, maybe, maybe uh, if you like, weaponized by the uh, the far right and has maybe made um, the armed forces in particular and the RAF as a um, as a, a no go area or at least a um, a place that is unwelcoming maybe to young um people of color from this country i'm just wondering how uh, how can we um 
kind of make the um, RAF uh, more appetising for young people and maybe tear it away from the far right and maybe from um, th that perception that uh, young people of colour may have of um, the armed forces? Um, I mean, that, that's, a, that's such a difficult one to answer, but I truly believe that the more stories are told um, across the board. I mean, there's an extraordinary story. This guy called, there was a, a black South African chap called Job Maseko, an, um, an amazing man. Uh, he joined the army. Um, they weren't given weapons as a matter of policy. They weren't trusted with weapons. Um, he was in Tobruk in 1942. They were captured. Um, there's a long story goes into that, that he wasn't, he was refused weapons. And that was one of the reasons why the Allied effort failed at that point. But he was then um, um, suborned into um, loading up a German, um, um, a German ship. And uh, he did so. But what he managed to do was create a homemade bomb. I mean, this is engineering. He created a homemade bomb by emptying out some rounds of ammunition into a biscuit tin. And uh, he got himself like a, a one hour long fuse. And then he stuffed this biscuit tin in, uh, in between some, some petrol cans deep inside the hull of this transport ship, mm -hmm. uh, lit it and, 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 and slid off and literally sank a German ship into Brook Harbour in 1942. He was awarded, I believe, the military medal. And there's been a long argument that he should get a VC for it. Um, mm. And he returned to South Africa and was a hero. But I mean, I think that, that's a movie there. That this this black guy on his own blows up a ship. It, it's just extraordinary, and it's just the belief in his own belief in himself that he that he felt he could do that. Um, and then for me to to hear that story gives me such a good feeling. I don't care what colour he is. That's an extraordinary. Or story. It's it's an extraordinary story. Yeah. And one that I would love to see the movie of. So if you then as a black person, as an African of African descent, if you knew that story and you understood that despite everything that was going on for this guy, and he got you know, if you read into his story, there was a lot of racism involved in, in, in his entire story. I mean, Africans Africans started the war before us. They started in 1935, and not a lot of people know that the Italians invaded, uh, I think, Ethiopia, and they they were kicked off the Second World War long before us. And at the end of the war, white Africans were given land and houses, and and blacks were given, I think, the boots that they were walking in and a suit. And you know that was what they were paid off with. So for me, it it really is about the triumph of the human spirit, and I believe that if if people knew these stories, it, um, it would give them belief and an understanding that there were guys who went before them and women and that it's possible for them um, to, to go forward, that things are changing, um, but it's a process, you know, it can't happen overnight and it has to be a process that kind of moves on all fronts. Mm. You clearly did a lot of research into World War II history for the book. Uh, what were your sources? <laughs> yes, I did. Um, I, the two things leaning over me, one was um, the fact that I am, uh, in theory, um, a highly trained engineer. 
And the second, that I think it was incredibly important to, 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 to tell a true story where I could. I mean, I've written a fiction. Um, the pilot that I came up with is a fiction. But everything that I talk about in terms of engineering terms, in terms of the Merlin engine, in terms of the Spitfire, uh, in terms of World War II, and in terms of pilot protocol, I felt needed it needed to be correct. It had to be truthful um, because, yes, you're telling a story that anybody in theory could pick up and read, but there are also always going to be experts who know better than I do. Who There's nothing worse than picking up, picking up a book or watching a movie when you know something of that subject and they've gone and done a real hash job on it. I, that irritates me beyond belief. So I didn't want to inflict that on someone else that just didn't seem to be a good idea. So um, I was tearing my hair out. I, I'd rung all sorts of um, museums, um, Imperial War Museum and people saying, look, I need a pilot. Can anybody point me to a pilot? And um, and the answer was no. Um, and conversationally, I chatted to my dad and said, oh, you know, I've drawn a blank. I've been trying to find a pilot. He says, what do you mean you need? I know a Spitfire pilot. I said, what are you talking about? You know a Spitfire? Okay. so." He knows um, uh, Roger Bailey, uh, who's the Shuttleworth chief pilot um, and who has flown everything. He's flown everything from pre-World War One all the way through to jets. Uh, and amongst that, he's flown um, uh, a Spitfire. So <laughs> extraordinary, um, put me in, in touch with Dodge Bailey um, and I drove up to Shuttleworth, which was used to be my local. When I was a kid, I would go to Shuttleworth with my dad. Um, uh, drove up to Shuttleworth and lo and behold, and this was extraordinary and I didn't know it, but they had in their workshop um, a Mark V Spitfire being um, taken apart and rebuilt. Um, so it was just absolutely extraordinary and brilliant because that was the Spitfire that I wanted wow. uh, and was writing about and, and was halfway through doing. And there it was in all its magnificence in bits. Um, spread around to workshops. So yeah, there were two workshops, one being the airframe, which is pretty massive and comprehensive. Obviously you've got wings and fuselage and whatever. And then the whole separate workshop, which is kind of more my area of expertise, which is was the engine. Um, and that again was in bits and uh, amazing to see. Uh, uh, and But those two disciplines need two different engineers because they're two completely different skill sets. And Ian Larriman was the Shuttleworth airframe engineer and Steve McManus was the engine overhauls engineer. And so it was amazing to, to speak to both of them. Um, every Spitfire is different. Um, uh, people cannot tend not to be able to see the difference between a Hurricane and a Spitfire. And the Hurricane really is, is a hangover from planes of yore, which were a frame with fabric over them to create the frame, uh, the sorry, the fuselage and the wings. And a Spitfire was the new generation which became jets, which is a metal frame with a metal skin. And so the skill to create that metal skin, what goes into that and creating rivets, some of which are flat rivets, every Spitfire therefore flies differently there uh, because of the subtle differences in how the metal has been um, formed. So every Spitfire will be slightly different. Um, and so it was kind of 
it was kind of brilliant and and an absolute thrill for me um because it plugged into that engineering thing that i had and that childhood thing that i had about uh romanticizing i guess world war ii and romanticizing spitfires um as well as that technical thing of okay so what tolerance exactly were you going into on that piston um that that to me was that to me was interesting and then wandering around and going oh my god those are the petrol tanks and oh wow that's the yeah wow you know and it, all of that so it was kind of a kid in the sweet shop uh for a day or two um and then you know i was lucky because dodge then took me into another hangar and walked me through how you fire up um how you fire up a, a spitfire uh, he sat in the cockpit and he walked me through and that was all i recorded all of it because i just needed to get it verbatim um uh for the book and for me it's an integral part of the book but i hope that it, to anyone who doesn't know and has no real interest in any of that it's still interesting enough and diverting enough because it is an insight into something that you wouldn't ordinarily find out wouldn't ordinarily know um it's still you know hopefully still of interest to them so yeah i hope that i did my homework is i guess what i'm trying to say um what what struck me which was surprising to me but when you think about it why should it be was you think of the mark one spitfire and the mark five spitfire as there's kind of two separate entities and they kind of were obviously the mark one came first but as as aircraft returned from sorties they were worked on things were fixed but if they could they would also stick on a new so-and-so or a new what you call it because they could so the aeroplanes were going through a consistent transmogrification um it wasn't necessary obviously the engine was the integral and the main thing um uh once they stuck a new lump in it then that really changed what the aircraft was but they were constantly being refined and modified um as and when the engineers could snatch uh, an hour or three to 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 fix something or upgrade it and and that was kind of extraordinary because it was all on the hoof as i say um uh, the battle of britain was a three-month thing and the the transition that these aircraft went through in that time was extraordinary and and the spitfire of all aircraft is is one with one of the longest um uh serving times i it went from being developed in the 30s and was still in service in the 60s and that's extraordinary when you think um how advanced and how brilliant the spitfire must have been obviously it went through an inordinate number of changes and developments in that time in terms of improving um uh, speed and and efficiency but uh what an extraordinary aircraft yeah it seems like um obviously you have a uh, a real genuine interest in the spitfire and um certainly uh, quite a few childhood dreams there um came through in the research for that clearly um I, it's interesting that you you did develop um an interest in obviously the spitfire and um, obviously aircraft in, in, in general and military aircraft. Um, where did that come from as a, as a child? Or as that, a very that child? has to be, I think it has to be the influence of my dad. My dad was an aeronautical engineer, um, uh, RE Bedford, Thurlai. Um, and from as young as I can remember, I had these massive hardbacks of Lancasters and Lancaster sorties and knew all sorts of facts about Lancaster bombers and 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 their achievements and 
when you're a child as a boy i think it's it's prevalent it's not total but it's so prevalent and i see kids today you know they they seem to, to love fire engines and they love tractors or they love and for me it was airplanes and and i guess world war Two. it was more immediate when i you know i'm growing up in the 70s that's a lot closer to world war Two than we are now um by a long chalk and and so it was there it was immediate and and those books existed for me to 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 drop into i always read a lot as a child and and that was kind of where i disappeared where my imagination took me uh, as a child so it stayed with me a long long time um mm. it was just i think more when i came to writing the book i think digging up a lancaster and four engines was a bit different from digging up one and there's something about how iconic the spitfire is it, it is the same engine i mean the uh the rolls royce engines uh, saved us again they saved um, the war they were incredible outperformers um so reliable and uh, workhorses um so it was an easy transition for me to move over to a spitfire for for the novel but originally it was length mm. I noticed that you mentioned um, that you were an apprentice engineer at the MOD. Um, what were your experiences there? Um, okay, so this is a long time ago. We're talking about 1983. Um, so it really was a different world. You know, this was um, CAD CAM was in its infancy. Um, the apprenticeship was extraordinary that we learned lathe work, milling, grinding to an incredibly fine degree to half a tenth of a thousandth of an inch. Um, we learned sheet metal um, and we learned the rudiments of electronics. But I was there as a mechanical engineer primarily. Um, I did it when I was 17. I didn't know what else to do at 17. I hadn't worked out what I was and it was a misstep as far as I'm concerned. It wasn't wasted time. I grew up in that, those four years I grew up, I moved to London um, and was working full-time as apprentice engineer. Um, and, and it kind of, there were aspects of it which were brilliant, like working on the Bluebell Railway, restoring steam locomotives, um, like working at the Natural History Museum, um, moving it over into the next century where kids could go in and interact pull levers push buttons and things would happen that's my job that, that was what i was there to do um and and that was kind of great um the downside was being the only person of color in a room full of a hundred guys um and what that served to do really was focus all of their attentions on me because i was the odd one out in every shape and form so um that was unfortunate and very difficult um, it meant um, growing up in a lot of ways um, that I wasn't expecting and I found it very hard and what it also meant was that it was very easy to leave behind um, so when the four years was up when I was 21 they, I, I knew in fact I remember I remember sitting in my final year doing my H tech at college because we were block release at college at Bromley Tech and I sat down to a three-hour robotics exam and I looked out and I knew by that time that I was going to go traveling. I was going to go uh, to Australia and I looked out the window across the fields and then I wrote a letter of apology to my tutor. 
to say, look, I'm really sorry, I'm going to drag your grades down. But um, this isn't for me. Um, and I'm really sorry. And I stood up 10 minutes later and walked out and everyone was a bit shocked. Um, it's something I don't regret, but I'm, I'm still one unit short of my HTEC as a result. Ah, uh, you could you could always go back. It's there. <laughs> <laughs> OK. Um, here at the Society, we are always looking at ways to encourage underrepresented communities, including communities of colour, to engage with UK aviation and also seek a career within the aerospace industry. After all, the widest pool of talent can only improve the range of skills and abilities required for our industry of world renown as it faces up to a post-COVID world and climate crisis. With this in mind, do you think these stories can improve the perception people of colour in this country have of the RAF and UK aerospace industry in general? I think um, there's no doubt that um, these stories are inspirational. You know, you go back to your own childhood um, and you can pinpoint the stories where you thought that's remarkable, that's extraordinary, that's inspirational. Um, when I wrote Cathedrals, that was what I, really what I was drawing on was what what is inspiring. What you know, the stories that come out of the Second World War and the and the war is chock full of them. Those stories are remarkable of of human achievement, um, of sacrifice, um, and of of pulling off. The extraordinary against all odds. Um, those stories are inspirational regardless of, of where you come from, what colour you are. So if you were then to find stories of, you know, a Nepalese Gurkha or an Indian Spitfire pilot or a Jamaican um, bomber pilot um, or an African who literally came from nowhere and single-handedly blew up a ship, it's like those are extraordinary and they can't but help inspire people. So the more stories we can uncover and retell um, to the best of our abilities, I think um, that has to be the way forward. And I, I listened to, is it Carissa Khan's um, pod, uh, the last pod, um, and it is proven that, that the more diverse your team is, the greater your productivity um, is going to be. It's, it's, a, it's an absolute given. And so that then behoves us and the aerospace industry in general to be A, welcoming and B, um, cognizant of the history of aerospace, but also that it is about shame. It is about guilt. It is about fear. Um, and it is about education. So as long as those four things can be consistently addressed by the industry moving forward. There is no reason why the industry can't go forward in leaps and bounds, knowing that it has within itself the, the keys to all of the problems that it faces. Mm. Yeah, so I guess that any young person of colour considering a career in the Royal Air Force would we now know, uh, be engaging in a rich tradition, even if until now, a hidden one. Absolutely. You know, you talk of, of a pilot um, from the First World War, that's over 100 years ago, 100 years ago. 
Mm. Um, and we're talking about 500 air crew in the Second World War from the Commonwealth, from the Caribbean alone. The tradition um, is massive. And just because it's been forgotten doesn't um, reduce it. Um, what's important is that, as I say, we do uncover those stories and ensure for future that they remain um, viewable because the ignorance is supreme and um, it's just so important that, that these stories are retained and remain visible because they will always be a source of inspiration. Um, and the more we can do about that, the more we can uncover, um, the more we can express them, the better, I think. Well, uh, Cathedrals in the Sky is available to buy on Amazon and October's Aerospace magazine uh, includes an article listing books and films highlighting um, the uh, exploits and um, triumphs and, and uh, activities of uh, black and brown people in uh, both US and UK um, aerospace. And I'd like to thank you, Andrew, for chatting to me today. It's been a pleasure having you here. Wayne, it's been a joy and an honour. Um, uh, thank you so much for inviting me.